The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? You doing all right on this cold, rainy morning? I can't believe it. We're going to eat tacos anyway. You know what? You doing okay? Can you believe we are three years old today? Can you believe that? I've got three kids, so I should know this, but I think at three, we graduate out of diapers, so we're sort of like... So in training, die. we're still a young church, but we're three years old today. Look around. Can you believe this? God is doing something incredible in our city, and you're a part of that. By the way, I'm just wondering, um, four years ago, we, Tyler and I, who moved here um, on the same day to start, the, uh, start this church, Story City Church, uh, a month after we moved here, February 2015, we had a gathering in our home with 18 people. I'm just wondering, is there, there was only 18 of us, and I think nine of them were paid staff members or family of staff members. Is there anybody in here that was at that first meeting in my home in February of 2000? Ian, my next door neighbor, he was at the first meeting. That is so awesome. And so after we, I, I, yes, and so after we moved out of our home three months later, we started meeting in the Banshee Theater. Anybody start coming to Story City when we were in the the Banshee Theater. Anybody? Bob up there up top, a couple of you others. Yes. And then we moved from the Banshee Theater and we launched our church February 14th, 2016 in Flappers Comedy Club. How many guys were started attending Story City Church in Flappers Comedy Club? That is awesome. And then after Flappers, we moved to the Colony. How many guys have started attending Story City at the Colony Theater? Okay, cool. And you know what? If you're new this morning, we want to say welcome. If you just happen to be here today and happen to show up, um, we want to say welcome. You showed up on a day that we're going to celebrate. We're going to eat tacos. Whenever we celebrate, we eat food. And... um, We're going to do that today. So welcome. We are so glad that you're here today. Now, if you happen to bring a Bible with you, um, go ahead and take it out, turn it on, turn it to John chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. Uh, We're going to put the words on the screen this morning. Um, If you are new this morning, I want to say to you that every week as part of our gathering, we open up the Bible and we read the scriptures together. And we ask the Lord what he would say to us and how he would speak to us every Sunday morning by opening up the scriptures, because we believe that the scriptures are the loudest voice in our church. And uh, we're going to do that again today. If you see people beside you taking notes, um, it's just part of the normal routine that we do every single Sunday morning. We open up the Bible and we ask the Lord what he wants to say to us. Now, let me pray for us in our time in the scriptures and we'll jump right in. Lord God, we love you. God, we're humbled by your mercy and your grace, your kindness to us as a church. In three years, Lord, God, we are in awe of how you want to use this small part of the kingdom of God in Los Angeles, Lord, to help people become all that you want them to be in Jesus. And so, God, this morning, as we open up the scriptures, I pray that you would speak to us loudly and clearly, and we honor you with our ears this morning and our hearts and our hands and our feet as you speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody in the Colony Theater said, amen and amen. A little over 10 years ago, uh, a guy by the name of A.J. Jacobs, he's a New York City journalist, um, wrote a book called uh, The Year of Living Biblically. Uh, Jacobs described himself as an agnostic Jew, and he said, I'm only Jewish in the sense that Olive Garden is Italian, but he said he wrote this book and he spent an entire year, he spent an entire year trying to take the Bible as literally as possible. 
trying to obey every single command in the Bible. He wrote them all down, and he tried to live that way. So everything from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 to what Jesus said about loving your neighbor, even these small, obscure Old Testament laws that related to like diet and cleanliness. And so he spent his entire year trying to observe every single rule he could find in the Bible. And so he spent an entire year not wearing mixed blend uh, clothing. I guess 50-50 shirts were out. He spent an entire year not shaving his beard. So he looked like ZZ Top by the end of his year. He, uh, he also says at one point um, he would sit on park benches and throw pebbles at people who were cheating on their spouses because the Old Testament <laughs> commanded that adulterers be stoned. He also said that he refused to shake hands with people who may be ceremonially unclean. And so he spent this entire year trying to live out everything the Bible said. In his book, he said, and after his book, if you read interviews, he said, it literally almost drove my wife insane. (laughs) Almost drove my wife insane. And so Jacob's experience is, is obviously not what it means to take the Bible seriously. It obviously is not what it means to follow Jesus, but his book really appeals to people and how they think what it might be like to live biblically, to live under the Bible's teaching. Many people would think that's impossible. In fact, if I were to do it, it would actually cause me to have a miserable life. For many people who are not believers, many people who are not Christians, that's sort of how they see Christianity. Hey, how come you didn't have a beer with the guys last night? Oh, well, I can't. Well, why not? Oh, my religion doesn't allow me to. Many people see Christianity as restricting. Many people see Christianity as oppressive. Many people see Christianity as life inhibiting. And really, this book is sort of tied to this concept that culture calls freedom, that we all try to achieve in our life. We call it freedom. To be free for many in our culture is to be unrestrained by any sort of authorities, any sort of constraints, any sort of restrictions, but rather we should try to discover ourselves and live out who it is that we are. In 1992, the Supreme Court issued a ruling that sort of described freedom. And this is what they said. The heart of liberty is to define one's own concept of existence and the meaning of the universe. And so some people look at Christianity and they think of Christianity and living according to what the scriptures say as this oppressive, restricting idea towards their freedom. Today, I want to preach a message titled Freedom from Religion. Freedom from religion. John chapter 8, Jesus has some incredible wisdom for us on this concept of freedom, what true freedom really looks like. Now, if you'll read with me, turn your Bible on, turn it to John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And this is what verse 31 says. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth This verse sounds familiar to some of you who have been around church for a while. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus here is talking to a group of people known as the Jews. They're people with these very rigid and tight rules about law and about behavior. They're people who thought they could earn God's favor. Their standing with God was dependent and based on their ability, like Jacob's, the guy who wrote this book, to keep Every law. And so Jesus says to them, here in verse 31 and 32, 
if you continue in my word. In other words, the progression of your faith is tied to what God has said. And if you continue to understand what God has said, then two things will happen. Number one, you will know what is true. Number two, you will know what true freedom is. Now, I want you to keep in mind and frame this message this morning in the context of how most in our culture would define freedom. The definition of freedom for most in our culture is that nothing inhibits me, nothing constrains me, um, uh, there should be nothing that should, uh, should restrict me but my imagination and my desires. I need to shed all authority in my life but me. And so culture's definition of freedom has this idea that I'm uninhibited by any sort of design, any sort of purpose to the world. Now listen, but Christianity runs countercultural to that idea. Christianity is countercultural to that idea because it tells us how we were designed. It also tells us how we should live in light of that design according to our purpose. Now, let me be clear about something. Christianity agrees with the culture's idea and description of what freedom feels like, okay? Christianity and culture are not in conflict when we, when we describe what freedom feels like. It feels alive. It feels like I'm fulfilled. It feels exactly like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but... Christianity has a different idea of how we get to that point. Read verse 33 with me. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And so when the Jews hear Jesus describe this concept of freedom as, as not be, they begin to process this idea of freedom as not being under oppressive authorities. They're saying we've never had political constraints. And so when we read what happens here 2,000 years ago, we understand this concept of freedom that we believe today in culture, it's not new. It's not a new concept of freedom. But then Jesus says to these men, the real threat to your freedom is not from without. It's not the oppressive restrictions that any sort of authority may place on you. It's not any sort of restricting things a government may impose on you. The real threat to your freedom, Jesus is saying, is not from without. The real threat to your freedom, Jesus says, is from within. Now listen to what he says in verse 34. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, let's unpack this for just a moment, all right? Let's unpack this. Every person, this should resonate with all of us in here. Every person on planet Earth lives for a treasure. We'll call it a treasure. That's what Matthew chapter 6 says. A treasure meaning something that fulfills us, something we believe satisfies us. Matthew 6 says we all live for a treasure. The passage goes on to say in Matthew chapter 6 that whatever we believe is our treasure will control our heart. And then Matthew 6 goes on to say that whatever controls our heart will also control our behavior. Now listen, everybody lives for something. American culture, especially here in L.A., all of us are trying to live and escape normalcy, trying to be something better, right? Achieve something better, uh, grow a better bank account, achieve a better status or success, be a better actor, be a better parent, move up to better housing. All of us are trying to move up to something better. Now listen, the tragedy 
of culture's definition of our freedom is that oftentimes the things that we live for, that we believe bring us fulfillment, the things we believe bring us satisfaction, oftentimes those things that we live for end up controlling us. It's exactly what Matthew chapter 6 says. Everyone is a slave to something. The Jews here are saying, we've never been a slave to anyone. We've never had political constraints or, or governmental restraints. How is it that you, Jesus, can say, once we come to you, we will be free? We've always been free. And Jesus is saying, actually, not really. Actually, not really. Even though you've not had outside constraints, you've had inside restraints because you've been living for things that you think will bring you fulfillment. You think, as Jacob's thought in the year of living biblically, if you do everything that's said in the Old Testament that brings you a right standing with me. Listen, everybody lives for something. Everybody is a slave to something. None of us are truly free. You may say this morning, I don't want to be a slave to God. Paul, the greatest missionary, writes many of the books in the New Testament, opens up many of his books, and he says, Paul, he describes himself as a bondservant to Jesus Christ. Some of us here this morning, many in our culture, would say, I don't want to be a bondservant to Jesus. I don't want to be a slave to God. But here's the reality. You're a slave to something. You're a slave to something. Think about this. Let's unroll this for a moment. What about this? Maybe it's accomplishment. Maybe it's accomplishment. Have you ever noticed in your life, do you find it to be true that, that success in your life or, or a lack of success in your life has a unique ability to affect your happiness? Have you ever thought about that? Has a unique ability to affect your happiness, even your mental state. It could even affect whether you're depressed. And listen, so then we, in light of that, in light of these accomplishments that we oftentimes live for, and typically we see this a lot of times in the lives of men who find their worth in what we accomplish. So then what happens is we begin to make compromises in how we work and how late we work and how much we work to the detriment of our friends and our family. Because why? Success drives us. But maybe it's not accomplishment for you. Maybe it's other people's opinions. <laughs> You ever have constant conversations in your mind? Like constant conversations in your mind and, and, and you're wondering what other people think about me. And, and you wonder what other people think about what I'm doing. In this town, we're told it's good for other people to think about you and it's even more good, I don't know if that's good, if it's even more better for people to think <laughs> well of you, to exalt you with fame and ability. Does criticism ever negatively affect you? Does criticism ever negatively, do you go out of your way to project an unreal life or a personality so that people will like you or share what you've said or accept you? Do other people's opinions dominate your thinking? Is this, are other people's opinions something you're living for? Is accomplishment something you're living for? What about this? What about relationship status? Do you believe at some point in your life, someone's going to come into your life that will fulfill you? What about pleasure? Is pleasure something that you're living for? It's the forefront of your mind. You believe if I just have this, it will fulfill me. Do you live for the weekend? Do you live for another drink, another high? Listen to me. Do you live for another look at pornography? Do you live for pleasure? Is pleasure your master? What about ideals? <laughs> what about ideals? What do you mean, Pastor Matt? Years ago, when Colin Powell was Secretary of State, he eventually resigned, and the initial report said the reason why he resigned was because of a difference of ideology. Do you spend your nights and days? Do you spend your nights and days fighting for your ideologies? 
your political parties, your side of the issue. Listen, let me ask you this morning. What is it in your life that you believe your life is missing that if you just had it, it'll satisfy you? It'll bring fulfillment. What is it that you look down on others about? Because they have, or they don't have, or if they had, or you have. What is it that you realize that, that, that you're missing in life and you're pursuing? Listen, listen to me this morning. Do you realize all of us have a slave mentality? All of us serve some master that controls us. If your master is accomplishment, then you will do everything you possibly can, ethical or unethical, moral or unmoral, immoral, to accomplish something. If other people's opinions are your slave, you will do everything you can to be accepted by them. If relationships are your master, you will go out of your way to make yourself available to people. If pleasure is your master, you will make decisions that will harm you. If ideals are your master, you will get in unnecessary fights. All of us have this slave mentality. Why? Because none of us are truly free. None of us are truly free. All of us serve some master that controls us. Do you ever wonder why that's the case, though? Have you ever wondered, well, why is that, that all of us are pursuing something that controls us? The reason is because we were created as dependent beings. We were all created as dependent beings. None of us have the ability to fully self-sustain. Today, a, a comet, a nuclear weapon, an earthquake could hit today in Los Angeles and destroy literally all of us. None of us fully has the ability to self-sustain. All of us have bodies that, with needs outside of ourselves. Now listen to me. Our souls are the same way. Our souls are the same way. Our souls have a source that sustain us. And whatever we're cultivating as the source of life, listen to me, whatever you're cultivating as the source of life is your master. It's going to determine what you consider to be freedom. Yet culture says true freedom is having no master. And we believe if we live life uninhibited, unrestrained, we'll experience freedom. Yet the reality is all of us, none of us are truly free because all of us have a master. Jesus says to live that way is absolutely impossible. To live that way is absolutely impossible. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, this is what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He goes on to say in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. Well, listen to what he says. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Now listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, an incredible theologian named Bob Dylan, wrote a song called Gotta Serve Somebody. This is what he said. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. How many of you know that? No, you're singing that in your you're singing that in your mind. So if everybody serves some master, can I ask you a question? 
who then is really free? If all of us really serve a master, then who of us is really free? Look with me in verse 35. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Let me ask you again. If all of us have masters, then who is it that's really free? Who's free? Jesus says the one who is free is the one who has the perspective of a son, not the one who has the perspective of a slave. The one who has the perspective of a son knows real freedom. Why does he know that? Why does she know that? You know why? Because a son knows where home is. Think about this for a moment. A son knows where home is. He knows where he belongs. You ever been on a trip and gone away for a while? You're like, you, you say this, man, I can't wait to get home, right? I could just sleep a night in my bed. A real son, a real daughter knows where home is. Some of you know my story. I was adopted at a very early age. And very early in life, I wrestled with uh, my mom and dad and my birth mom and dad. I never knew them, but I oftentimes used uh, my birth mom and dad as sort of a weapon against my real mom and dad. And in moments when I would get mad or angry at my real mom and dad, my adopted parents, I, I would threaten to run away from home. And one time I actually did. I, some of you have heard this story. I actually did run away from home. I, I ran away from home and I, and I hid under my parents' bed, <laughs> sort of. And I took a change of clothes. I'm not sure why I needed them, but I took a pillow and a blanket. I, I took a box of cheese nips, and, uh, and I hid under the bed. I left home. But it didn't take long to realize a couple hours later when it was time for dinner that, that I didn't really want to be away from home. I, I didn't want to leave home. You know, a son, a daughter knows where home is. We sing about this concept all the time, right? We sing about this concept all the time. Home is where the heart is. Sweet home, Alabama, Michael. <laughs> it's the national anthem of Alabama, by the way. Sweet home, Alabama, Hannah and Ian, right? right. Look, look, going to Carolina in my mind. Thank you, James Taylor. Country roads take me home. Hotel California. Wait a minute, never mind. We sing about this concept of home. Listen to me. God created us to be at home with him. We're only at peace when we're at home with him. Paul left religion in Acts chapter 9. He came home. Lydia left business pursuit in Acts chapter 16. She came home. A great number of Jewish priests left their rituals in Acts chapter 6 they came home. The Ethiopian eunuch left his political desires in Acts chapter 8 and came home. The men of Athens left their ideologies in Acts chapter 17 and they came home. No matter what we try, no matter what master we pursue, we can never replace the fact that we were created to be at home with God. That's why so many of us are unhappy in marriage in the cars we drive, in the homes we live, in the careers we're pursuing. We weren't created for those things to be our masters. We weren't created for those things to bring us peace. They're not our true home. God is. Not only this, but a son knows where home really is, but a son also knows that the father best understands how we should live. 
a son best understands that the father knows how we should best live. My sons, I have two of them, a nine-year-old and a four-year-old. I've got an eight-year-old daughter. My children, I love them. Listen, they are created in my image. But listen to me. I understand better than they do at nine and eight and four what's best for them. And I tell them, <laughs> like this morning, Dad, I want to play Xbox. You know we don't play Xbox before school or church. Why, Dad? Have you ever seen yourself when you play Xbox and you get done? That's why. <laughs> I know what's best for them, and I tell them. And Jesus is telling the Jews, the rebellious Jews, real freedom. Real freedom is found when we discover how God created us, and we desire to live that way. Culture says freedom is doing whatever you want. Jesus says freedom is doing what you were created to do. And there's some realities here that we need to conform to if we're ever going to be truly free. C.S. Lewis was a great Christian author. C.S. Lewis is a great Christian author, and he said one time, imagine you're walking by a lake, and you come on a fish who's lying on the land. He says, is the fish free? No, the fish is not free. The fish is actually about to die. If you try to free a fish by putting him onto the land, you're actually not freeing him. You're actually killing him. The fish is freest when he's in the water as he was created to be. And a son understands that the father best knows how we should live. John chapter 8, verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're only going to live in freedom when you live in the truth of how God created you, how he designed you to live. And so to live according to culture's myth that in order to experience freedom, we need independence to do whatever we want is a myth. It's simply that, a myth. Sometimes doing whatever you want conflicts with how you were made. And so when culture says freedom is having no master, Jesus says freedom is having the right master. So what is the right master? Verse 35. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Church, can I say to you this morning that the gospel alone has the power to set us free? The gospel alone has the power to set us free. But listen to me. Let me prove this. For some of us, living in God's house, as a child of God, John chapter 1, verse 12, it feels like slavery. Religion feels like rules. It feels like things are restraining you, inhibiting your freedom from doing what you really want to do. When I was in fifth grade, my parents enrolled me in something called ballroom dancing. Anybody been to ballroom <laughs> dancing? You know where I'm going. All right. Fifth grade, I'm enrolled in ballroom dancing. If you know me, you know, if you've ever seen me dance, please, I hope you've never have. If you've ever seen me dance, I, I look like somebody on roller skates having an epileptic fit, all right? I am not a good dancer. So my parents enrolled me in ballroom dancing, fifth grade. And there's this moment in ballroom dancing where you're sitting across from each other, the guys on one side, the girls on another side. And it Every single night at ballroom dancing, two things happen. There's a girl's choice and a guy's choice. Fifth grade. There's nothing more awkward to a fifth grade boy than wondering, oh my gosh, who am I going to ask to dance with me? The only thing that could be even more awkward and life inhibiting and debilitating is wondering, oh my gosh, which one of these girls is going to ask me to dance? My hands start to sweat. My knees are like, I don't think I can make it all the way across the room, right? So my mom would drop me off, and she's like, son, I hope you have a great night. 
And I'm like in my mind, dear Jesus, please come back to earth right now. <laughs> For some of us, the thought of living in God's house as a child of God is like having to suffer through ballroom dancing. It's bondage. Many of us view God and his word and his church the same way I view ballroom dancing. It's bondage. Can I say to us this morning, when you don't love the Father, living in the Father's house will always feel like slavery. It's natural. Doesn't that make sense? We, we have the heart of a slave, not the heart of a son, verse 35 says. And we won't want to live in God's house forever. We'll resent the feeling of bondage if we stick with God. We're going to look for every opportunity to get out. That's because we're not a son. We don't have the nature of the Father in us. Now listen to how this passage closes, and I'm almost done. Verse 37 says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking, listen to what they say, Jesus says to them, you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. Verse 38, I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your earthly father. There is no greater indication that God is not our father than in our desire to hate what God loves and to love what God hates. Can I ask you a question this morning? Does obedience to God, things like grace, forgiveness, mercy, even sexual purity, do, do those things feel like drudgery to you? If you were to obey God this morning, listen to me, if you were to obey God this morning, would it feel like God's a taskmaster, keeping you from things that you believe really fulfill you, doing what you really want to do? Or would you resent God? Would you hate God? Jesus says to the people in verse 37, you actually want to kill me. Now bear with me for this. Jesus told these people that he's talking to, I'm everything your heart desires. I'm everything you want. You can trust me and follow me, or you can secretly wish to get rid of me. Now we know what happened here. That's exactly what they did. They secretly hated Jesus. When the opportunity came, they actually killed Jesus. Listen to me this morning. When the opportunity comes to obey God, do you kill it or do you obey it? Do you secretly hate Jesus? You're like, I've never had ill intentions towards Jesus. It's not always in how we think. Sometimes it's in how we behave because the reality is our heart controls what controls us. Thinking that God is inhibiting us, do you secretly wish to kill Jesus? But what Jesus wants to do, <laughs> but what Jesus wants to do, the scripture says, is to give us back this heart of a son. Give us this heart of a son that trusts the Father, who's like the Father, who loves what the Father loves. So how does God do that? How does God truly make us free? The Bible says you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Scripture says he changes our hearts. He gives us a heart where we really delight in God, where God is our home, where you and I can trust in him and love him. This is the truth about his love for you. 1 John 4, 19 says this. We love Jesus because he first loved us. What causes our love for God? What causes our love for God is our understanding of how he's loved us. There's an old hymn 
There's an old hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Listen to me. That's why at Story City Church, we constantly say to you, we want to put Jesus on the pedestal and say to you, look at him. 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul tells a young pastor, Timothy, to remember Jesus. That's what we're constantly saying to you. How does the love for Jesus come about in our hearts? It's not through occasional church attendance. It's not through, through tipping God during a tithing time. It's not some religious activity, praying or inviting. It's a love for the Father can never come that way. Let me share this illustration, and then we're going to close. When I was 21 years old, my father found out in September of 1998 that he had terminal cancer. September the 4th, he found out he had terminal cancer, and they told him he's got two months to live. My father ended up living eight years, but I want us to think about this. If you've ever experienced the death of a loved one that you know had a terminal illness, What's usually common is that, is that you give a lot of thought during the time they're still living to, to that person, to who they are, to what they mean to you. My father was given this terminal prognosis of not having long to live. Most of my thoughts were about my father during that period of time. It's really the memories of my dad were really all I could think about during those eight months. Every day I'd wake up thinking about him. I'd go to sleep thinking about him. After he passed away, I'd literally almost wake up every night for a while, then once a week, then once a month, once every couple months. And it was all I could think about, memories of my father, thinking about getting up at 3 a.m., him waking me up, and us driving in his old Datsun pickup truck, and we, we would spend the day together hunting. I remembered my dad and all the practices and the games that he would come to. I remember on my 15th birthday, my dad came into the house and walked me out into the driveway, and there was my first car. I had all these memories of my father I was thinking about when I knew I didn't have long left with my father. And there was another memory that I had of my dad during that season when he was terminally ill. And I told you earlier, when I was a young kid, I was adopted, and I had this idea, this, these times that I would get angry at my adopted parents, and I would use that adoption as a weapon against my my real parents. And there was this moment in the garage that I remember very clearly. I was angry at my dad. And I said to him as a little kid, I hate you. And I don't want to be your son. And I remember how my father responded. He wasn't angry. He wasn't upset. I still remember the look on his face. His face was a face of sadness. He looked back at me and he said, son, I'm sorry you feel that way. I carried that conversation until the day that my father died. And I told him before he died that I was sorry I ever said that. I'd always loved my dad. He was my hero. But in the last eight months, I loved him even more. Why? Most of my thoughts were about him. I spent my time thinking about him, how good he'd been to me, how he loved me over the last 21 years. Listen to me as I close. So it is with Jesus. 
So it is with Jesus. When you consider how he loved you so lavishly, so graciously, the more beautiful Jesus becomes to you. The more you hate the sin that put him on the cross, the more your heart will change. You'll no longer consider God a taskmaster and living in his house as a slave. You'll be able to say with David from Psalm chapter 27, verse 4, one thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. When you've arrived at that place where your heart longs for Jesus, you'll understand what Jesus meant when he said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. For some of you this morning as we close, being in church, even the thought of being a Christian may be drudgery to you this morning. It's not a delight. Let's be real. Let's be honest this morning. Maybe you think you're in the Father's house, but you have a heart of a slave. This morning, the thing not to do is to make up your mind to change. You can't change. You can't. You need to come before the Lord. You need to come before Jesus and say to him, God, I need you to change my heart. Teach me about your love, how I can delight in your love. Help my affections be overwhelmed with love for you. Not sin, not other things that are controlling me, not other masters in my life, not other things that I've sought satisfaction in my life. Jesus, change my heart. Maybe the reason you don't love Jesus this morning is because you've never received this free offer of forgiveness and salvation. Would you do that this morning? If you do so, you come to this point. The Bible says in the book of Peter, the last thing I want to share with you this morning is it on the screen. The book of Peter said, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. He's trying to bring you to him this morning. Would you receive his offer of salvation and forgiveness? I want to pray for us this morning. Just close your eyes, bow your head in the last moments. Jesus, thank you that you love us. We're not an accident, happenstance, circumstance. According to Genesis 1, you created us. According to John 3.16, you love us for God so loved the world. The book of Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us there's a problem between us and you, and that problem is called sin. Romans 6.23 says if sin is never solved, there's never a solution to our problem, the result is death, both in this life and the next. But God, you tell us in your word, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. If we would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved. And God, you tell us in John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who called on him, to all who believed in his name, you gave us the right to become a child of God. I pray this morning there will be people in this auditorium that will come before you and confess their sin, ask you to save them, forgive them. God, allow them to experience the freedom of being a son and being a daughter and being a child of God this morning. Lord, we love you. Thank you for today. For those who do know you or are experiencing challenges 
the thoughts of being a slave, not loving being in your house, not loving being your son. God, would you, by the spirit of the living God, speak directly to their hearts. For it is freedom that Christ came to set us free. I I pray this morning, God, that you would set some people free from the bondage of slavery, loving to be your son, your daughter. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.